Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, April 26th, we are studying 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. In today's text, St. John states that God is love. We know what love is because he has loved us by giving his Son as the propitiation for our sins. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeff Hemmer. Pastor Hemmer serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois. He is also the assistant to the president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Pastor Hemmer, welcome back to Sharp Good morning, Pastor Apple. Great to be with you. So we get started today, Pastor Hemmer. Let's talk context. What should we know about 1 John leading up into this chapter? So John's epistle is is a it's just a fun book. Um, but it it seems so peculiar to us who are who are used to a, a speaker not repeating himself so frequently as John does. Um so it feels like what we hear here in the middle of chapter 4 we've we've heard a lot before god is love therefore we ought to love one another right so he just said something very similar to that back in the middle of chapter 3 this is the message you heard from us from the beginning that we should love one another do not be like cain um by this we know love that he laid down his love for us and so we also ought to lay down our lives for one another um Earlier in chapter 2, warnings against love of the world, against a disordered kind of love. Um, and so now now in chapter 4, it's not that John is, is repeating what he's said before, making the exact same argument, but he, he's really building upon this foundation that he's said before and saying now more emphatically and more clearly the point that that he's really been been building towards it's it it builds more as as sort of a, a crescendo so that it becomes amplified by the time that we hear it here in in the middle of chapter four and and we should also note that just uh right before this section in chapter four we've we just came through John's very clear warning which again is not unlike um, the argument that he's been building up to in that regard as well um, about having having pure doctrine and not being led astray by um, anyone saying that that Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh, uh, which would be the spirit of Antichrist, not being led astray by false doctrine. Um, so this this polarity between, uh, warning about false doctrine and warning about false living that would be confessing something falsely by by not living according to the love that God has shown us. Uh, these these two themes are really building up all throughout this this epistle. And so John just warned in chapter four 
to test the spirits. Every spirit, uh, you'll know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. So there's a strong warning against Gnosticism here, um, which would uh, would have been slowly infiltrating the church, um, de-emphasizing the, the fleshly material nature of Christianity, downplaying the incarnation, the crucifixion, and certainly the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and our own resurrection as well. Um, and and so John has a very clear warning about false doctrine, and then he follows it up with this very strong admonition that we must love one another because God is love. Mm. So talk more about the connection between love, as John has will talk about in this text, and pure doctrine, as he's said in the previous text. These are themes that John has come back around to multiple times in this book. Why is it important that we keep those two things connected, pure doctrine and the Christian love? Yeah, isn't it telling that in in our age, people want very much to downplay pure doctrine under the guise of loving one another? Can't we just agree to disagree can't we can't we allow Gnostics in our church? Can't we allow different perspectives on Jesus, on the the atonement, on on the value of the death of Jesus? Can't there be some some room within the Lord's church to disagree about what things are sinful, what things are disordered within his creation? Because God is love. And if God is love, then we then we must love, and not just love, but accept a whole variety of, of different interpretations of the Word. We must be tolerant uh, of, of a variety of, of doctrines, um, and, and we must be accepting of things that, you know, generations ago we all clearly understood were sinful, but, but now, you know, people believe that, that this is how God has created them, so we must be loving and accepting of them. But here John sets these two things uh, very firmly together, that, that zeal for right doctrine and zeal for the right exercise of that doctrine by means of loving one another as God has loved us are, are inextricably held together all throughout John's gospel. So we don't, we don't love by ignoring false doctrine. We don't love by allowing anyone to, um, to say, you know, there are multiple paths to heaven, or the real goal of Christianity is to break out of our physical existence. To allow those things in the church is really the opposite of love. Um, and the same is also true of, you know, our, our culture's desire to embrace a, a, a wide range of um, aberrant sexual practices, uh, misunderstandings of the binary nature of humanity being made male and female. And, and we're told that we have to accept all these things because God is love and he wants us to love one another. But for John, right doctrine, seeing the world rightly, confessing rightly who God is, what he has done for us in Jesus, and our future hope of the resurrection, a, a fleshly, physical, 
being raised from the dead goes right alongside with loving one another, not in a way that overlooks sin or allows false doctrine to persist, but we love in the same kind of sacrificial way that God loves us, a love that's never invested in our own good, but a love that's always invested in the good of one another. And really, that's that's where our culture gets love most grossly misunderstood, that we think love begins with, really, that it's not love to allow a person to persist in false doctrine or something counter to the Word of God. It's really self-love, which is just selfishness, um, because I don't, I don't want to have to deal with someone's false, dangerous doctrine. So if, if I try to love apart from pure doctrine, not only will I lose the pure doctrine, but I actually won't end up loving the other person in any true sense of the word. No, because, because love, the, the love that God has for us, right, if God is, is pure and perfect love, and this sets the paradigm for how we are to love one another, then the love that he has for us is such that it refuses to leave us in our sin. The, the perfect demonstration of God's love for us is that he gave his son into death on the cross so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, so that we would no longer be held captive by false doctrine, false belief, despair, other great shame and vice. His love for us redeems us, draws us out of our, of our self-indulgent way of thinking. It refuses to leave us as we are. So also our love for others then in this pattern ought to be the same. It's never, it's never interested in my good and what makes me comfortable and safe and popular and fit in in society. It's always interested in what is best for the other. Yeah. Yeah, I'm reminded of the way John wrote earlier in this epistle in, in chapter 2, where he says he's writing these things so that we wouldn't sin. Mm-hmm. This is what God wants us to be free from, is our sin. And so to, to attempt to love while living in sin, again, runs counter to everything that John has already written and the things that he will write in the text that we've got for today, which, as you said, often get misused in our world today, but rightly understood are a great light for us as Christians. Any more introductory comments before we jump into this? No, let's get into it. All right, so this is 1 John 4, beginning at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. That is our text for today. That is 1 John 4, verses 7 to 12. So, Pastor Hammer, you mentioned that John repeats himself often. The word that he uses at the beginning of our text, beloved, is one that we've heard him use to address his readers before. Why is that a significant address that John uses for his readers? Well, you just really get the sense uh, that that John's deep pastoral heart is on display all throughout this letter. Um, and whether it's it's in calling his audience beloved here 
or whether it's calling them little children, my little children, um, both of those have a kind of double meaning to them. So those to whom John writes are likely those whom he catechized, baptized, those to whom he regularly preached, um, those to whom he is, he is familiar, um, they to him and he to them. And so they are both beloved by God and also as God's dearly beloved children, uh, they are beloved to him as well. And so there, there's kind of a, a double meaning there, doubly beloved. The same is true when, when he calls them, you know, his little children. Um, they are, on the one hand, children of God, having been made children of God, sons of God in the waters of holy baptism, but also in the same way that Paul says, I became your father in Christ, um, John understands his pastoral role to be a fatherly kind of role, and he has a, a fatherly kind of affection for those to whom he writes. So when he calls them beloved or when he calls them my little children, he means both of those things, that, that they are beloved by God and they are, they are beloved by him. And, and this, is, this is towards the end of John's life, so you get, you get just the, the sense of an old pastor having, having seen you know, so many of the things that he writes against, so many intrusions of false doctrine, so many uh, preachings of, of things contrary to Christ, so many antichrists rising up, um, so much lack of love playing out within the church that, that he, he is both uh, drawing them back to the message that he has been proclaiming to them from the beginning, but also in, in kind of a, at, toward the end of his life as a swan song of sorts, reminding them, and, and passionately so, of these things that, that are critically important to him. That, that weigh heavily on, on his heart as well as a pastor, as, as one who is called to shepherd his people, to guard them from false doctrine and false practice. Why is that sort of a relationship between pastor and parishioner, especially thinking from John's perspective, pastor toward his people? Why is that important for the pastor to see his people as those loved by God and then so love them as well? Well, in, in sort of what we'll get to in, in just a little bit, right? In verse 10, John says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, uh, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That this, this is how valuable these people are to God, that he was willing to give his son to death on the cross for them. That, that establishes the value of of humankind, that God was willing to, to spend the life, the precious blood of his Son on the cross in order to redeem them. And so they don't, they don't have uh, value to a pastor because of, you know, how hard they work in, in the nursery or how capable they are at, at managing the, the membership tracking software or how many volunteer hours they, they give to the landscaping around the church. Um, 
they they have value because of the love that God has for them. And so his love for them flows from the the father's love for them as well, which is not not because of what they do, um, but because of what God has done for them. If they were worth the life of God, then then that is how the pastor treats them as well. That's why they are beloved to him, because God has so loved them, in spite of who they are, because of their deep need for his love and for Christ to be the propitiation for their sins, um, that, that that is then how, how their pastor sees them as well. Yeah, and, and uh, thinking through the way John writes in his gospel, how he consistently refers to himself as the one who's loved by Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved— the pastor does well to include himself in those loved by God, for it is only in the love that he has received from God that he can then turn and love his people as the Lord would have him right. do. Right, and the same is true in in their view towards him. Right, that they don't they don't love him because because his sermons are always on point, or because he's so diligent in in making calls to the shut-ins. They don't love him for what he does, but they love him for who he is in God and for the love that God has had for him as well. Hmm. An excellent, so this excellent is where connection John... there that you made for us with, with the way that John always refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is not to put himself above the other, the yeah. other apostles, but, but just to connect his own identity um, right, with something deeper than, than the name that his parents gave to him. Um, his identity, and and so should our identity be as ones who are beloved by the Lord. Yeah, yeah. I, and this is something that I don't know when I realized it. I think the the very first time that I that someone told me the disciple whom Jesus loves in the Gospel of John is John himself. And the first time I learned that, I remember thinking, well, that's that's awfully arrogant of him to to consider himself that. And at some point, it, it dawned on me, and probably someone taught me this, that no, he's not being arrogant. Rather, that is the the best thing he can think to call himself is one who is loved by Christ. And so it is for any of us. And I, I think that's one reason why you see the word love show up so often in this epistle, is because that's John reflecting on the love that Christ has for him and desiring that those who read this epistle have the, the same joy in being loved by God. Yeah, that's tremendous. So, beloved... Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. As you said, Pastor Hammer, sometimes it sounds like John repeats himself. A lot of this sounds like things we've heard before. How is he clarifying, amplifying what he's said already about the love that we should have for each other? Well, uh, our love, as we said just a second ago, does not does not derive from within us. It does not derive from any ethical system that teaches us how how we are to treat one another, but our love is grounded in, in baptism. In baptism, we have been born of God, therefore, John draws this, this equal sign, those who have been born of God, and therefore who know God, are those who love, um, and and the same can be can be said in the inverse, that those who love are those who who truly have have been born of God. So we don't we don't begin by understanding what love is. We begin by understanding who God is, 
what he's done for us and delivered to us in causing us to be born again in the waters of holy baptism, that's where we understand what love is, and that's, that's why then John can say, let us love one another, not because love comes from the world or because love comes from within us or because love comes from, from a philosophical system that teaches us how human beings are to relate to one another. Love comes only from God, real love. Mm. And I think your your connection to baptism is very helpful with what it says about has been born of God and then knows God. I would I would also connect that then to the the word of God. This is the way that we know who God is, is through his word. And so it as we were saying earlier, to know God and then to have this love is to recognize who he is from his word. That's another key thing John has emphasized in his epistle. Yeah, and and even though it comes from the tail end of, of a different evangelist. That's, that's what Jesus says disciples are, those who are baptized and taught. Mm. Uh, make disciples by means of baptizing them in the triune name of God and teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. So being born of God and knowing God, um, disciples are those who are taught the Word and brought into the Word in, in the waters of baptism. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. That's a great connection. In verse 8, then, John says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Help us into this verse. Yeah, and and if you have a, a short list of Bible verses that, that people love to know but not to understand, uh, this, this is definitely on that short list. Um, everybody likes to quote that, that God is love, um, but but to do so in in a very uh, anemic kind of way, to to think that we understand who God is because we are so good at understanding what love is, um, but actually it's it's the inverse. Once we've come to know who God is through His Word, um, through the the gift of the Son of God on the cross, then and only then. Can we come to understand what love is? The, the same is true of um, when when Paul says uh, that that all fatherhood is named for God the Father. It's not that we clearly understand what a father is, and so God uses this as a way to illustrate to us what His own nature is. Rather, He is eternally Father, and and He calls men by his own title, and we only understand what true fatherhood is in the fatherhood of God himself. So we, only, we can only know real love in God, and it's not the other way around. We don't understand who God is because we all have this sort of understanding of love chiseled into our psyches. And what what happens if we do approach this in the opposite direction that you're talking about, and we come with whatever understanding of love that we have, then when we start looking at the things that God does and the God and that God says in the scriptures, and we compare that to our definition of love, he doesn't measure up to the standard that we have set up. And so we end up 
blaspheming God, or, or I mean, that's taking it all the way to the extreme, but we, we end up rejecting him because he hasn't measured up to what we thought love was, but we've started in the wrong place. When we try to set the definition, everything runs wrong. It's only when we let God do the defining of love that we will get it right. Exactly, which is why this section can so easily flow out of John's zeal for the truth that we just had at the beginning of chapter 4, why these can, can go so well hand in hand. Um, because at the core of who he is, God is also truth. Um, and we, don't, we can't approach that from the inverse either and think that, well, if we know what truth is, then we, then we can approach knowing what God is. Um, but his zeal for the truth is the same as as his absolute definition of of what love is, but we would not we would not with our um, very narrow, um, often selfish view of love, we would not understand zeal for truth, um, and and doctrinal precision to be very loving. For us, we think love love would just um, welcome everyone regardless of their beliefs. Um, love would be a kind of universalism where at the end God receives everyone to himself because everyone has been, you know, everyone has had faith in something, um, some kind of faith. Um, not important what your faith is in, just that your, your faith is in some higher power and you're striving to be better. And in the end, God will, will understand everyone is really striving towards him in the first place. But that's when we approach things from our, our very selfish view of love. But if we understand love derives from God and not from our own view of the world, then it also makes sense that God is absolutely concerned with, with, the, with the truth of, of what his children believe and confess. Yeah, yeah, and the, and the truth of what then his children do with their lives. As John has said, the Lord is setting us free from sin. He's writing these things so that we would not sin. This is what God desires to free us from, precisely because he is love. He wants what is good and right and best for us. We're going to keep talking about this text from 1 John on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Jeff Himmer this morning. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, April 26th. We're studying 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12 with Pastor Jeff Hemmer. He serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, and is also the assistant to the president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Pastor Hemmer, prior to the break, we were talking about those three simple words that John writes that are often memorized, often misused. He says, God is love. We were talking about some of the misunderstandings that are out there about what John is saying. I can't remember who 
told me this, but I, I found it helpful that oftentimes our world, instead of believing that God is love, they would they actually end up making making it say love is God. That they actually, again, come to this verse, they have their own idea about what love is, and then they impose that upon the true God, and they end up making their definition of love into God, rather than, again, letting the true God be who he is and let him define love by his words and actions. Yeah, yeah, that's excellent. Um, inverting it and then and then following the natural consequence of that. Not that God is love, but that love is God. Um or, or the the horribly uh, illogical statement that's that's so popular nowadays to say love is love. Right. Right. What does that even mean? Yeah. It, well, I think it means that however you define it uh, is yeah. is satisfactory. So right. any any kind right. of love, love for self, love for others, disordered love, self-seeking kind of love, it's all love. And that's all that matters. Yeah, right. Well, and, and when that is our attitude, love is love or love is God, then it's, it's, it's ironic, although it's, and it's telling, that that love that we come up with usually looks a lot like whatever I want to do, whatever I think is best. And it often then, as you have said several times, it, it ends up devolving into disordered love. It, it becomes love that isn't directed toward my neighbor or toward his good, but it ends up being directed toward my own sinful pleasure. And so when we when we invert this verse and make it love is God and define that love ourselves, I think disordered, as you've been saying, that's a really good word. And I think we can see the fruit of that in our world today. Yeah. So anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So we are going to let God define what love is for us. And John makes it plain as he continues into verse 9, then he sets the standard. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Help us into verse 9. So just in case uh, you thought you'd get away with, with defining love on your own, here is how God makes visible what is the love by which he is defined. Um, here's how the love of God was, was made manifest among us, that he sent his son into the world, um, and then he'll, he'll build on that again in just a little bit. What he really sends his son to do is to give himself on the cross for us, um, so that we might live through him, that in him we might have life. And this, um, this manifest is, is just a fun word, and, and it evokes, uh, in my mind, almost immediately, um, our, our great epiphany hymns, right? God in man made manifest, made visible. Um, God reveals the things to us that he wants us to know about himself, and and what is the the heart that he wants to wants us to know about himself? Well, the eternal second person of the triune God becomes flesh, and what does he become flesh to do? He doesn't become flesh to teach us how how to get along with one another, teach us how to be more successful. He doesn't even um, the 
number one priority in his becoming man, um, in manifesting um, all the fullness of the Godhead in the flesh of a human being, his number number one priority is not even to to write his creation, but it is to redeem mankind by giving himself on the cross. Now, writing his creation flows from the giving of himself on the cross, um, but but that is that is the the beating heart of what God wants us to know about Himself, um, that that He would rather give His Son than lose a single human being to sin, death, and hell. You mentioned the the Epiphany hymn, and when I think about the love of God, some of my favorite hymn stanzas deal precisely with God's love because I think our hymnody really does a, an excellent job of directing us back to God's definition of love to show us what he what he actually means by love. So just a couple of stanzas, since you brought the season of Epiphany up, in the hymn, O Morning Star, How Fair and Bright, that's number 395 in the Lutheran Service Book, stanza four in that hymn says, Almighty Father, in your Son, you loved us when not yet begun was this old earth's foundation, your Son has ransomed us in love to live in Him here and above. This is your great salvation. That that stanza, I think, gets at what you were talking about in the, the love of God being made manifest in redemption even more than in, in creation, and that what God does in creation goes toward what God is going to do in His redemption in His Son. And and I, I can't help but, but think about the love of God when I think about Paul Gerhardt's hymns in our hymnody, uh, one of the Advent hymns that we sing, O Lord, how shall I meet you? Stanza four of that hymn talks about God's love like this. Love caused your incarnation. Love brought you down to me. Your thirst for my salvation procured my liberty. O love beyond all telling that led you to embrace. In love, all love excelling our lost and fallen race. And there's more. There's more hymnody that we could could bring up. But I, I love how often our hymnody directs us to the reality of what God has done for us in the incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension of his son, and that is what shows us what love truly is. Can we do one more? Can we talk about 544 oh, yeah. too? Oh, love, how sure. deep? Um, because it really, it, it points us to the selfless nature of this love. Um, oh, love, how deep, how broad, how high, beyond all thought and fantasy, that God, the Son of God, should take our mortal form for mortal sake. And then... Uh, if there if there's a refrain or a phrase that repeats over and over in this hymn it it is uh these two words for us for us baptized for us he bore his holy fast and hungered sore for us temptation he knew for us the tempter overthrew for us he was betrayed by wickedness for us all this that that he does his incarnation um, and and everything that happens to him, he does intentionally, and he does not for himself, but for us. And that is that is the the nature of God's pure and perfect love, and that it has not even the the slightest taint of selfishness. Mm, yeah, yeah. Paul Gerhard again in the the Lenten hymn. O love, how strong you are to save. You lay the one into the grave who built the earth's foundation. I mean, yeah, it's all over our hymnody. The one you've, you've brought up is fantastic. For us, 
for us, for us. This is God's love. It is for us. And in the, these words from 1 John 4, verse 9, I hear an echo of, of perhaps the perhaps the best-known Bible verse of all, John 3, 16. That, I mean, you want to know what love is? God loved the world in this way. He gave his son. It sounds like John's echoing that here in his epistle. Yep, and, and building on it, or building yeah. to so it, whichever in, was written first. That's right. Yeah, that's, did you want to nope. weigh in on that debate? <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> so in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. It was made visible so that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Notice how God's love is connected to the gift of life. In this is love, John continues. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Help us into verse 10. Yeah, this... Th- this is the, the core of this little section of John's epistle. So, love, love does not originate with us. Um, we, don't, we don't love ourselves into the kingdom of God, into the church, into the family of God. It doesn't originate with us, but this is love. Not, not that we did any of it, but that God loved us, that salvation begins with with his action towards us and even even before his action with with his affection towards us and loved us when when we were least lovable doesn't doesn't clean us up so that he can love us but loves us in the midst of of our uh our loathsomeness to him our our anti um holiness, our, our rejection, our, our state of rebellion against him. In the midst of all that, he loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. So our love then only can only ever be a dim response to the love that he has demonstrated for us. And, I mean, fantastic that, that we've been, you know, uh, neck deep in hymnody today as well, because this this is the the beautiful comfort of of the divine service and and of solid Christian hymnody is that it doesn't fixate on our love for God, um, and when we when we gather in church, the most important thing that happens is not all of us uh, telling God how much we love Him, but rather. We are, we are telling one another in song how much God loves us. And we do, we do of course, respond to his love with, with prayer and praise, um, adoration, thanksgiving. Um, we love him in response to his love for us. Um, but the real, the real focus of, of what happens when the Spirit brings the people of God together is God's love for them which he demonstrated once for all in the cross and continues to demonstrate in, in the same selfless nature of, of Sunday morning. God is there because he is the giver of gifts, because he wants to gather his people together, not so that they can stroke his ego um, and get him through the doldrums of Monday through Saturday until, until they can reconvene and tell him how wonderful and awesome he is again on Sunday. But he gathers his people together because he's the God who loves them, who loved them on the cross and who still loves them in Jesus, 
loves them in baptism and in absolution and in communion. And, and this is love, that God still loves us in Jesus. Not that we loved God first, but that he loved us first and chiefly. Mm. You know, this reminds me of what we talked about in the previous text, where John identifies those spirits that do not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Those are not the ones that are from the Spirit of God. And we talked about how that often manifests itself today in, in the teaching that you know Christ is not truly present in the sacrament, that, that we are the actors in the sacrament rather than God. And I think it, it fits very well with what you're saying here. And again, you see the close connection between these two things. That, that our when we come together for the divine service, that is coming together so that God would serve us with his gifts. And as you said, we do respond with prayer and praise and thanksgiving, but the primary direction of worship of the divine service is from God to us, of Jesus still coming in into our lives today to give us his service, to give us his love, to use the language John is using here. And here's the other connection between that section and this section, is that if God has flesh, then then both his presence is particular and also his love is particular. And so his flesh says that he demonstrates his love on the cross, and his flesh says that, that his love and his presence are particularly found where he chooses to reveal himself. Um, and his, so his his flesh is is quite distinct and quite particular, and so any any spirit that would deny the fleshly presence of Jesus both uh, is born of bad doctrine and would steer us away from the real particular love that God has for us. In this text, verse ten again of chapter four, John uses the language that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. I think you use the word sacrifice. We've encountered this word before in 1 John chapter 2. What, is, what does it mean that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins? So, yeah, it. Uh, you're right. We heard it just uh, back in chapter 2, where John began saying, My little children, I'm writing so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. Um, and so the, uh, the, the footnote there in the study Bible um, is quite good, um, that this is that all the holy demands of God's law have been satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So God, God demands, all the way back in Leviticus, God demands that his people be holy as he is holy. Jesus himself says, you therefore must be perfect as the heavenly Father is perfect. So the, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is the, is the completion of his perfect obedience to the law and will of God. And then it's offered not not for his own sake, but it's offered for our sake. It's offered in, in this wonderful phrase from Luther, a, a blessed exchange, uh, a happy exchange, a happy trade between Jesus and me, that all of his perfect fulfillment of the law is credited to me, and all of my 
inability to fulfill even one letter of the law for a moment is laid upon Jesus. So his his death on the cross is is the um, the complete fulfillment of the law, um, the complete enduring of the wrath of God, and and the full payment for what we rightly deserve because of our sin. All of that is wrapped up in this word propitiation. The way you explained it, I think, also highlights what you were saying earlier about the love that God has shown for us in giving His Son. He has shown that love to to we to us when we were unlovable. And just one more hymn. At le- well, maybe it'll be one more. We might add more after this. But my song is love unknown. My Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown, that they might lovely be. There's there's that great exchange. He, he comes to us in our lovelessness and shows his love to make us lovely, to, to make us his own holy, righteous people in that great exchange, the happy trade that Christ makes with us. What glorious good news that St. John gives to us. In verse 11, then, he, he yet again calls his readers the beloved ones, and he comes back to where he started. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then he says in verse 12, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Help us into these last couple of verses. Yeah, so here then, this is the paradigm for our love for one another. If all this is how God has loved us, we ought to love one another in this same way. If God loved us such, we also ought to love one another just as he has loved us. So, in a sense, he's returning with the same phrase that he used in verse 7, but now now it has more meaning to it. It has more, more weight behind it because he's just said, here, here is how God has loved us, that his son is the very propitiation for our sins, that he has taken away our sin, borne our guilt, given his life in exchange for ours so that we might have this full and free and abundant life in him, being set free from condemnation, from guilt, from shame, from the just punishment that we deserve for our sins. All of that is how God loved us, and all of that then is how we are to love one another. And so now now you see how otherworldly this love is. Um, how it it can't come from within us. It can't begin with our own self-understanding of what love is, because we would never get there. Selfish people will only ever invent a selfish kind of love, or a selfish understanding of love, a selfish attempt at love. But we, we are set free even from that as well, and the love that God has shown for us is, is 100% selfless. And so we then, being set free from our sin and from what we deserve because of our sins, we are then free to love one another with this very same kind of love. Not because it comes from us, um, but because God's love has been manifested in the world Um, because it has been made manifest to us and in us uh, and around us as well through his means of grace and in his church. 
And so we, we can only do it when we have received it. Yeah, well, and that's the importance of the word in the English translation here, the word so. If God so loved us, that word so there is not a word of extent, that if God loved us this much, rather it's a word, as you've been saying, of the how. God loved us in this way. So perhaps this is one of the, the troubles with, with us when we think about love and we just use it in the abstract on our own. Well, I just need to love more. Well, not exactly. You need to love in a different way. You need to love in the way that God has loved you. And again, you can only know that when you've seen the love that he's shown you in Christ. And, and it's, yeah, it's still so very contrary to, to our understanding, right? It's, it's the, it's the, uh, the, the guy who's been forgiven the, the massive debt, as Jesus tells the parable, 10,000 talents. And he can only understand what, what ridiculous this gift of forgiveness that he's been given is because it's been done to him. Um, that that he's had this astronomical national debt kind of debt forgiven him, but he goes out and he and he throttles his fellow servant who rightly owes him money, um, and and who has a reasonable plan to to repay him, right? But he's he's called to have the same kind of radical forgiveness, radical love for his neighbor that he has been shown. Um, and it's not it's not the other way around. It's not that his his love for neighbor somehow tells him about God's love for him. It's that having been forgiven in this way, having been loved in this way, we are we are set free from all selfish trappings of love. The last verse of our text, John tells us that no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And this maybe takes us into tomorrow, or the the text that we'll cover after Sherathon in in May, in the rest of this chapter. Why is what is the fact that no one has ever seen God? Why is that important? What does it mean that God's love is perfected in us? I stumble over this this phrase that no one has ever seen God, because the author of this epistle has in fact seen God, right. and and will end his uh, will end his gospel saying. We, we are eyewitnesses of these things. So he can't, he can't mean, of course, that, that no one has ever seen Jesus, but maybe more in the sense that, that God warning Moses, no one can ever see my face and live. No one can ever see all the glory of God, but he has hidden his glory and revealed the glory of of his love towards us in the person of Jesus. So I think I think it redirects us to that as well. Not that, of course, no one has ever seen God, um, but that now in the life of the church, we love one another with the same kind of love we have seen and continue to see on the cross. And so in that God God abides in us, remains in us. His work continues in and through us in the way that, that we endeavor to love one another as selflessly as we have been loved by God. Hmm. 
Yeah, I, I think the way that you described it is very helpful, that no one has ever seen God in the sense like Moses wanted to see God and was told, no, you can't, but that we have, in fact, seen God in the way that he has hidden that sight through the most surprising place of all, his death on the cross, and that in that love, that is where we truly see God. And then he brings that love to completion as it is again made manifest now in the love that we have for one another. And John's going to pick up on this in the next text that if we say we love God whom we haven't seen and we don't love our brother whom we have seen, then something's wrong. So I think what you're saying there about the love of God being the place where we actually see him in the in the cross of Christ, that's that's what John is getting at. Not that you can't actually see Jesus because as you said, he he makes it plain that he did. But that's where we truly see God. About a minute left here, Pastor Hammer. Help us to wrap things up. Well, uh, you. This is one of those sections that that is worth committing the the whole thing to memory. But if if you want just one one verse to to commit to memory, it's verse ten at the middle. That that reorients us away from thinking love love would ever begin with us. Um, and reminding us that love begins with the one who is eternally defined as love. Um, it's not not in us or from us. It's not that we were the initiators of this love, but rather that that God loved us first when we were unlovable, and demonstrates that by sending His Son, by holding nothing back, by being willing to pay every cent of the debt that we owed him by willing to endure the suffering that that rightly was ours on the cross that that is pure and perfect love and so this this then teaches us about about our vocation too right this is how a father ought to love his children a husband ought to love his wife uh, siblings ought to love one another with a love that doesn't begin in in the goodness of the other person it's a love that begins in, in the Father's love for us and in seeing the other person as, as a beloved of God and, and knowing that that person has value because of the, the price that was paid for that one, that price which is the very life of Jesus. And so Christians love one another because the life of Jesus was paid for, for each person. Pastor Jeff Hemmer is pastor at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois. He is also the assistant to the president of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod. He has been helping us today to study 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. Pastor Hemmer, thanks for being our guest today. It's been great to be with you, Pastor Apple. I look forward to the next one. share is coming up here on KFUO starting tomorrow and continuing through Saturday. It is your opportunity to partner with us to share the good news of Christ for you anytime anywhere. Listen tomorrow, Friday, and Saturday for special programming and opportunities to partner with us. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions for us, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.